Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering. One bank teller instead of the usual five. Slow, fast food lines. Simply not enough staff. Grandma's Office Catering avoided the mass exodus with the respect, appreciation, better wages, and now health insurance. That's how Grandma continues to wow. Grandma'sCatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Friday, July 22nd. Coming up, the National Baseball Hall of Fame will induct Negro Leagues legend Buck O'Neill this weekend. Years after his death, O'Neill's impact is still felt by coaches, players, and fans all over Kansas City. The love for the game, that was Buck. And not just the love for the game, it's the love for people. You don't be in this dugout if you're not a people person. Plus, a Kansas woman tells the story of how she ended a pregnancy that threatened the life of her and her baby. But first, some headlines. Wyandotte County is experiencing its highest average of new COVID-19 cases since mid-February. KCUR's Carlos Moreno has more. The average of daily COVID cases is 60% higher than this time last year. According to the Wyandotte County Health Department, infections have been steadily increasing since mid-March, when there were only three or four cases reported daily. Now an average of about 50 cases are being reported every day. Most of the county's recent COVID cases have been reported in teens and preteens. The University of Kansas Health System advises that because of high community spread in Wyandotte and Johnson counties, residents there should return to wearing masks in public spaces. Officials estimate that last month's Amtrak train derailment in Missouri caused about $4 million in damages. KCUR's Savannah Hawley has more. The crash occurred June 27th, when the Amtrak Southwest chief hit a fully loaded dump truck that was stopped at a railroad crossing. Four people, the dump truck driver and three passengers, died, and dozens others were injured. According to a preliminary report from the National Transportation Safety Board, the train was going 89 miles per hour, just under the maximum speed allowed, when its emergency brakes were activated. So far, at least nine lawsuits have been filed by survivors and family members of victims in the crash some against Amtrak and BNSF, others against MS Contracting, the company the dump truck driver worked for, and one against Sheraton County, where the crash occurred. Buck O'Neill will be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame this weekend in Cooperstown, New York. Greg Eklund reports for KCUR, 16 years after his death, O'Neill's name and memories of his personality and wisdom are still being passed along in Kansas City. It was here in 2006 at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum where John Buck O'Neill learned he had fallen one vote short of entering the Hall of Fame. Museum President Bob Kendrick still remembers the day. I'm the one that had to break the news to him. And I know in his heart he thought he was in. We all thought he was in. And it didn't happen. And it was devastating to all of us. O'Neill was disappointed, but not surprised, he said at the time. He'd seen deserving players get passed over, and he braced for the possibility that he, too, would be denied. See, everybody thought I was a shoe-in, but I knew better. Since having been on the Veterans Hall of Fame committee, I knew what could happen. O'Neill died later that year, but there was relief and jubilation last December when it was announced O'Neill had finally received the call to the hall. O'Neill will be honored in the executive category for people with a profound impact in the front office. But he also became the Major League's first African-American coach in the early 1960s with the Chicago Cubs. Before that, he traveled the Deep South as a scout and signed players like future Hall of Famer Lou Brock. There you go. Attaboy. 
Another player he scouted is Kansas City's Ronnie Stevenson, who never made the big leagues. Instead, Stevenson went on to direct an inner city baseball program for the boys and girls clubs. The love for the game, that was Buck. And not just the love for the game, it's the love for people. You don't be in this dugout if you can't, if you're not a people person. It's just one lesson learned from O'Neill that Stevenson now coaches into youth players in the Ban Johnson League. Uh, Buck was a Buck was an icon. During his final years, O'Neill took every chance to speak up for other Negro leaguers, especially those who, in his eyes, belonged in the Hall of Fame. I'm gonna make them listen. <laughs> it's why he helped establish the Negro Leagues Museum in 1990. And though he was not one of the 17 Negro Leagues figures elected to the Hall in 2006, he was still their voice at the induction ceremony. I've done a lot of things I like doing, but I'd rather be right here right now representing these people that helped build the bridge across the chasm of prejudice. Also among this year's inductees is Bud Fowler, believed to be the first black player in the history of professional baseball, dating back to 1878. Fowler is exactly the kind of player O'Neill thought people needed to know about. Of course, right here, right here. This is why the Negro League was established at the museum, really. Bucks teams won four Negro League titles. O'Neill was the museum's board chairman until his death. President Bob Kendrick says attendance has surged since December. I do think a lot of that coincided with the jubilation that people had that Buck was at long last being inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. In Kansas City, O'Neill's name and likeness has been applied to a bridge, an education center, and even emblazoned on a streetcar. Starting this weekend, a plaque bearing his name will officially mark his rightful status in Cooperstown as a baseball immortal. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Greg Eklund. Buck O'Neill's Hall of Fame induction ceremony is scheduled for Sunday afternoon and will air live on the MLB network and at MLB.com. Today we bring you the last in our series of local abortion stories. Kelsey Walker is an author and the founder of the nonprofit From the Green Desk. She told KCUR's Steve Kraske that she had to get an abortion when she found out her daughter had a fatal medical condition. She says restrictive abortion laws in Kansas made the experience especially traumatic for her. Now you had one child already when you and your husband found out that you were pregnant. What was the reaction to find out that you were going to have this second child? We were overjoyed. We had tried to get pregnant. We were planning on having another baby. But throughout the first few months, <laughs> was there any indication there was something wrong? Yeah, up at, you know, we had had our 13-week scan and everything was normal. Everything had been normal up to the 17-week ultrasound, which is your anatomy ultrasound, where you find out if it's a boy or a girl, and you get all these great pictures. But when we went in for our 17-week anatomy scan, the ultrasound technician kept getting quieter and quieter. And when we um, asked her what, you know, how everything was going, she said, well, the doctor will discuss your results. And when we went in to talk to the doctor, he said, you know, there, he was 
pale and he said we don't know what's wrong but there's something very very wrong with your baby we're going to send you to a specialist in wichita which was an hour away from where we lived to see what's going on but you need to be prepared for the worst how did you process that information at that time honestly it was ringing in my head it's kind of like the movies where you get a cancer diagnosis there's this ringing in your ears and you know just uh just crying, bawling, shock. Um, you know, my husband comforted me, but you know, nothing could prepare us for the specialist appointment that we went to a couple of days later where they did a two and a half hour ultrasound that showed us all of the broken bones that were in the baby's body and her ribs that were breaking in on her heart and her lungs and her skull that flexed underneath the pressure of the ultrasound wand. And when they sent us over to the doctor after that ultrasound. They told us that she had osteogenesis imperfecta type two, which is the lethal version of brittle bone disease. And no one lives to 28 days of life if they live outside the womb. And if they do, they suffocate to death Mm. uh, because their lungs can't develop. And if if they do make it to that point during delivery or spontaneously it also threatens my life as well um, because one of the broken bones could cause internal bleeding inside of me. Kelsey your husband found out it was going to be a little girl her name was going to be Hope how did he take the news? Yeah it crushed him because he always wanted a little girl so when we found out that it was going to be a little girl we found out that you know we weren't going to be able to have her you know either way it it completely crushed him. Hmm. Tell me about the process of undergoing the procedure itself. And were you treated well? How much did the laws complicate this process for you? So one of the frustrating things about how it went down was there was 10 days from when we found out anything was wrong to having the actual abortion procedure. Because in the law of Kansas, you you know, the cutoff is 20 weeks for abortion. And so we didn't have a lot of time to process what was going on or, you know, put plans in place for a funeral and, or anything like that. It, it had to happen right away if we were going to do it. So we, we did. And the procedure that I had is called a DNE. Most people hear of a DNC. And because of that procedure, it actually takes all day. Um, you're there from 7 a.m. till about 4 or 5 p.m. And because of the laws in place, the the caregivers had to ask me six times if I wanted to be there having that abortion. Hmm. And in my heart, I wanted a healthy baby. I didn't want to be there, but that wasn't in the cards for us. Um, unfortunately, and, you know, we had to go through another ultrasound to see all of her broken bones and face that again. And then for the final stage of the procedure where they're separating you from the baby, they can't put you out all the way because you're not in a hospital. You're just in a clinic they give you a medication that's supposed to make you sleepy and help you forget the procedure. But because of the medication, every time I fell asleep, I stopped breathing. And um, so they had to keep waking me up. And so I 
had to face the broken condition of my daughter's body from the disease. I had to face the pulling and the feeling and it because and it's mostly because of these laws and these regulations that are in place that it caused these traumas. And, you know, I want to make sure that it's clear that, you know, even though the caregivers and the doctors have to follow these laws, they were very kind to me and very caring because they knew that I wanted this baby. They knew that this wasn't the option that I wanted. Um, They gave me a card with her footprints on it. They gave me the blanket that they held her in. One of the nurses kept eye contact with me and held my hand while the procedure was going on because they also don't let your partner back in the room with you during the final part of the procedure either. You mentioned your partner. How did this affect your relationship, Kelsey, uh, during this obviously very difficult time? It was really hard for a long time. Um, We worked opposite shifts. So I worked during the day. My husband worked at night. So grieving happened separately for a long time. And it's taken quite a while for us to really come back together as, as a unit to, you know, be a, a cohesive piece again, because of the having to grieve separately. You wanted support through this difficult time and you wound up calling an abortion support line. What happened there? I found in the newspaper an abortion support group, or at least that's what it said. And when I called, they said, okay, meet us here and we'll talk to you. It was not an abortion support group. It was a pro-life organization that ambushed me with mm. a pastor that told me that they, they might pray for my baby, but I was going to go to hell for what I had done. <sighs> so between the churches that rejected us from getting her ashes blessed and the <laughs> encounter with this pastor, it really kept me estranged from God and from faith for a while. You know, I was definitely a person in a foxhole that that needed that support. And if, you know, if a Christian organization or any organization wanted to help me at that point, that was the time. And it was a door slammed in my face. You know, Kelsey, there are these new laws in Missouri now related to abortion in the wake of the overturning of Roe. And it seems unclear whether you'd be able to terminate the pregnancy because your life, you know, technically wouldn't be at risk until and and unless one of your child's broken bones had perforated you. Does that sound right? Oh, no. You know, and it's also one of the problems in the debates that are in the Kansas amendment coming up as well is it's already active in states like Michigan where you have to have sepsis or shock or be bleeding out to have it be that the mother's life is at risk. I had a three-year-old son at home and and a husband that wanted me alive. They didn't want to wait for me to be actively dying to see if mommy would be there for him. And that's not fair to the mother, that's not fair to the children at home or, or the partner. That was KCUR's Steve Kraske and author Kelsey Walker. You can hear their entire conversation from up to date at kcur.org. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Ujia Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and Trevor Grandin and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. You can read Greg Eklund's coverage of Buck O'Neill at kcur.org. 
On Monday, we'll hear about a leading Republican candidate for Missouri's open U.S. Senate seat. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.